0: This episode's guest is Matt Walden. Matt trained as an osteopath and a naturopath in the 1990s, completing an honours degree and later a master's in osteopathic medicine, then going on to train in the Czech system between 2001 to 2005. His ambition was to work in professional sports, a goal he achieved by 2003, since then, he's contributed several chapters to various medical texts and has been the editor of the rehabilitation section for the Journal of Body Work and Movement Therapies since 2009. In 2006, Matt bought an early version of the Vibram five-finger shoe and was the person who explained to Vibram that their saline shoe at the time had applications in rehabilitation and conditioning. Matt presents both home and abroad to postgraduate, undergraduate and various medical groups and has been part of the Czech faculty since 2006. Matt lives in Surrey with his wife and two kids. On this episode, Matt and I discuss Matt's background. I asked Matt why he became an osteopath. Matt shares the story of how he became involved with Vibram Five Fingers. I asked Matt about research surrounding the efficacy of barefoot running. I asked Matt how he deals with very stressful periods in his life. I asked Matt for his current and top reading recommendations. And finally, I asked Matt if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, it was a great episode with Matt, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Matt, thank you so much for making time for me on a Friday evening. I really do appreciate it. How are you doing? That's a pleasure. No, well, thanks for
1: inviting me, Robbie. It's uh, it's always fun to have a have a chat about uh, you know things that we're, we're like minded in individuals are interested in. It's uh, yeah, it's nice to talk shop, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're definitely an individual that I've wanted to you know have a good conversation with and get you onto the podcast. So, for the listeners, for anyone who isn't too familiar who we are, you are, know, give us your background and go as deep as you want. Sure, sure. Okay, so.
1: um, well, sort of professionally, my, my background is that I trained as an osteopath and naturopath in the 90s, uh, 93 to 97. And um, I decided I, because I kind of missed out on the idea of traveling. Some of my friends traveled when they left school and some of them were doing three-year degrees. So they'd already been traveling by the time I finished. And, um, and so I thought, you know, I'd quite like to get away and, and uh, see some of the world. So I went to New Zealand so I had to work in an osteopathic practice. And that first year I was out. Um, I thought it was probably a good idea to get a long way away from home when I was still, uh, you know, <laughs> just a, a newbie in the world of osteopathy in case, uh, you know, I did anything drastically terrible to a patient. Um, but uh, but uh, so I, I worked in a really busy practice there, which was lovely uh, in the sort of uh, central part of the North Island of, of New Zealand called Rotorua, and um, it's best known for its smells because it, it, it stinks of eggs when you get there because there's a lot of sulfur. Uh, and all these geysers you know in, in coming up into the air and mud bubbling mud and all this kind of stuff so it's uh, it's a very different world and um uh, you know so i enjoyed obviously seeing all of that and you know taking taking uh, swims in hot streams and all kinds of cool stuff that, that you know you can't do here in the uk um but it was it was in that year while i was out there that um the guy who owned the clinic just popped a poster up on the on the pinboard and it was um, about this guy called Paul Czech who. Uh, was talking about primal patterns and there's a picture of some sort of uh, caveman type imagery uh, of someone squatting and lunging and so on and I thought well that's interesting because that's a bit like uh, some of the training i had done with a guy called Phil Beach who's an osteopath and an acupuncturist and he had talked about archetypal rest postures and I just found his work because he, he he kind of used evolutionary principles to understand human function um, and, so uh, I thought, oh, this guy seems to be doing something similar here. So, um, and it was a free evening talk at the local rugby club. So I went down and, and listened to him and I was quite impressed. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't say that, you know, I thought, oh, wow, you know, I've got to train with this guy, but, but I, I thought, you know, he, he's got a different way of looking at things and he, he really understands, um, you know, human biomechanics and training methodologies in a way that's far different and deeper in many ways to what I trained in as an osteopath. And, um, you know, I'd always felt in my osteopathic training that uh, I had great uh, great kind of armament of hands on skills. You know, if something's tight in the body, an osteopath is one of the the people that's most likely to help you to release that tension because they've got so many skills, you know, from massage to various deep tissue release. to. My fascial release to joint mobilization, joint manipulation, all of these, and then really subtle stuff like functional techniques and cranial techniques. And so you got this whole armament of things essentially to loosen up things that are tight. But we didn't really have a whole lot to tighten up things that were loose or, you know, to condition the body. And, um, you know, I had a bit of a sporting background. I played a lot of football and basketball and volleyball, and I've been to the gym a fair bit and, you know, just generally enjoyed sports as a, as a kid. So I had a bit more awareness than the average person, in you know, in, in my circles. But um, Paul clearly had a whole different level of knowledge. And um, so, you know, I was kind of tempted to get some of his his professional materials at the time, but I didn't because they're quite expensive. Um, <laughs> and I just carried on with my time out there and uh, decided that I wanted to come back to the UK. And partly, partly because my family and friends are here, partly because... Um, I wanted to move ahead in my career and and do some continuing professional development, um, which was quite limited in New Zealand at the time. Um, And also I wanted to work in professional football, and they they don't do professional football in in New Zealand. It's all about rugby in New Zealand. Um, And, you know, even the top clubs out there from a football perspective are probably slightly better than a good local team in the UK, not to, not, not to put them down at all, because I, I played while I was there and it was fun and there were some good good athletes. But um, but the thing is, well, one of the interesting things about New Zealand is that, of course, very small population, um, but amazing at rugby, like incredible to be so world dominant when you've only got 4 million people in your population. Um, and, you know, you kind of think, well, what, why is that? And it's a lot of it's to do with just the passion. You like all all the kids want to be an All Black, right? You know, it's just so all the all the people with the most sporting talent. That's going to be what their dream would be. Whereas my experience in the UK was that certainly most of my friends wanted to be a professional footballer. They, you know, rugby was kind of a very much a secondary sport. And I guess it depends where you where you grow up and which schools you go to and and so on. But um, but you could see that, you know the drives there in New Zealand, everything, you know, has got uh, an all black sponsoring it, you know, from washing machines to Mars bars to whatever, you know, it was like the all blacks were the people that were in the spotlight the whole time. And um, uh, anyway, so, you know, I, I decided to come back to the UK, did, um, did a master's degree uh, from 98 to 99. And um, in order to work in professional football, what I thought I'd do is I'd do my research with professional footballers. And so. I looked at hamstring strain in professional footballers because it's the most common injury, right? So it's it's um, the, the the single injury that that keeps professional footballers out of playing for the longest period each season. Um, and also, there's a high-profile case at the time, Michael Owen, who was the sort of rising star of, of uh, the, the England football team and the Liverpool football team. Uh, he scored that amazing goal in, uh, at the World Cup of 1998 as a 18- or 19-year-old. Uh, so he really sort of burst onto the world scene. But then he kept uh, straining his hamstring. Um, so next season, I think he had seven hamstring strains in a row. And um, so I thought, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to investigate hamstring strain and to kind of put an osteopathic spin on it, which is just, I think, certainly at the time, was, was just a little bit more... Um, uh, Broadly thinking about the body, so you know, rather than thinking of the hamstring so much, it's like, well, what's going on at the sacroiliac joints? Is there, uh, you know, some kind of imbalance between the sacroiliac joints? Is there something going on in the lumbar spine? You know, what's going on higher up in the shoulders? Um, and so I was, I was looking at this um, as holistically as I could, given my training at that point, and I was, you know, uh, studying a lot of the core stability and motor control stuff, which was all very fresh and new and exciting at that point. And developing some ideas and some theories around that myself um, uh, with the hope that that would lead me into professional football and, and, and it didn't uh, at the time um, but I thought as part of that research uh, I ought to check out that guy Paul check again and just see you know it's the early days of the internet so I managed to sort of uh, I probably didn't Google him I probably Yahoo'd him or something at the time I don't think Google were even there at the time um, and I, and I found him, um, found his institute, sent them a, an email just to say, look, you know, I'm studying hamstring training professional footballers and, uh, you know, have you got any resources that you'd recommend or insights? And they basically wrote back to say I should uh, should buy the scientific back training uh, videos as they were. <laughs> so I did that, they were VHS tapes and um, they came, came through and um, I was watching them and reading the manual and I was just thinking this is amazing information because you know this is this is ahead of the curve so much that you know even the people that were at the leading crest of the wave at that point they um were talking about some of the same things that paul was talking about but they weren't talking about it in near the kind of depth or uh with the solutions that he had and the kind of you know, he brought in concepts from strength and conditioning, which just weren't there in the rehab world, you know? So talking about acute exercise variables is one of the things uh, that, that you have to, to train in just to get onto the first level of the check training, which is uh, reps, sets, lows, tempos, and rest periods. So it's, it's like, you know, at osteopathic college and in all the physio courses I, I did around that time, it was just a case of just like shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, 10 reps, you know, just do 10 reps, maybe for 10 seconds. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of joke, that if we were living 100 years ago, it would have been worth 12 reps for 12 seconds because we were back in an imperial system then. It was like there's no rhyme or reason. It's just because we're metric. We say, oh, well, I'll do 10 of this and 10 of that. Um, but there's no science to it, right? Whereas Paul had grabbed all of the science from the, from the strength conditioning world and had applied it to the rehab world and was also talking about rehabilitation and, and that kind of return to sports, which still at that stage, I mean, it's quite, it's very common that people talking those terms now but in 1999-2000s that was that was barely talked about the idea of actually taking someone all the way back it was like the key focus was to get them out of the pain, you know and then once they're out of the pain, oh you can go back and play football again or whatever but um but he had this whole sort of process delineated and i think what what really caught my attention was that um when i looked at the videos they were shot in 1993 right so so, so there I am in 2000 by now, and thinking this is, this is way ahead of the curve. And then realizing that the videos were actually shot in 1993, which means that, you know, for Paul to have that level of mastery in the videos, he must have been doing it for years before that, you know, and it turns out he was. So, so that was what kind of really inspired me to, to, to go into the Czech system, and to have that training alongside my osteopathic, naturopathic training. And, um, yeah, you know. So, from there, and feel free to jump in if you if you want me to to change tack a little bit, or just keep keep working through it. But um, from from there, um, two thousand and one. So I finished my master's degree. Then I saw that Paul Check was coming over to do a series of seminars in Maidenhead, so just just west of London. Um, and I thought, you know what? I looked at all the content I thought, I thought I've got to book onto this. I've got to go and see what this guy's like now. You know, this is kind of three, four years later. Uh, from when I first saw him, and he was phenomenal you know i 'm listening to him talking, and he was referencing every top name that I had dug out in my research and i 'd done you know two theses one in ninety seven one in two thousand so I was really up to speed with the most recent research um, and you know he was just rattling off these names of of, of different researchers, but he had integrated it and synthesized it into a system. Um, and also, he wasn't biased. It wasn't like oh, I won't talk about that person because they're an osteopath. It was like the, this osteopath says this, and that chiropractor says that, and this physio says this, and the Pilates guy to say that. And he, you know, feldon And he was just bringing in all of these concepts on the kind of biomechanical ends. But then he had the training side, and he's talking about Poliquin and Kramer, and and you know, uh, what's the name of the guy? The periodization guy, Tudor Bompa. He's talking about motor learning and he goes into Schmidt and again, all of these names, which some of them I wasn't familiar with at the time. Um, but some of them I was. And, you know, then he started talking in very naturopathic terms because my, my degree, my original degree was in osteopathy and naturopathy. And um, you know, I never even really knew what naturopathy was <laughs> before I went to the college. Uh, I was just interested in being an osteopath. But, but then when I went for my interview, the uh, the principal of the college was saying to me, "Well, look, you know, what do you know about naturopathy?" And I was, you know, like any sort of good seventeen-year-old, I was completely unprepared um, to to, to do, do the interview. And um, I said, "Well, you know, is it a bit like homeopathy or something?" And he said, "Well, no." And he explains naturopathy is really um, that we we see the body as a kind of mix of three core components: the, the biomechanics, the biochemistry. And the emotions. And he said, so that's the naturopathic triad. And so he, he gave the example. If someone has a whiplash, then of course it's a biomechanical injury, right? You know, you've had stress to the ligamentous system and to the muscles and to the joints of the neck, right? So he said, we can ease that, we can ease off muscle spasm with our hands, and we may be able to give some exercises to help rehabilitate, and we can uh, you know mobilize tight joints and that, this kind of thing. But he said, But if that person is deficient in vitamin C, for example. Well, vitamin C is required to make collagen, which is what the connective tissues are made from, you know, and the muscles are made from and, and the joint capsules are made from. So he so, said, so, so, so we, we want to offer people some nutritional support to help their tissues to heal. And I thought, well, that makes sense. And he said, you know, and if, if they've injured themselves or injured someone else or written off the car, you know, in, in that crash, well, there's going to be an emotional component to it as well and he said that could hold them back from healing if they're stressing out over how they're going to be able to get to work or what their parents are going to say about the car they wrote off or whatever it is he said there's this emotional element and he said so we can't ignore that because that can hold tension in the tissues or keep someone in a state of fight flight so they don't heal properly so essentially he said that's our our approach is that we use biomechanics biochemistry and emotions And just from that conversation onwards, I knew that was the college for me to go to. So I I went to that naturopathic, osteopathic college. Loved the training, fantastic experience. But jumping back forwards to 2001, where I'm sat there with Paul delivering these seminars, and Paul starts talking about this naturopathic triad. And he starts talking about, um, well, not in depth, but he mentioned on a couple of occasions spirituality, which was something I was interested in um you know i think uh you know when you said start wherever you want to um sometimes when i'm giving presentations i do start right back at the beginning and talk about my you know i wanted to be a professional footballer and i was a pretty good footballer but i i wasn't quite there you know and so even at the age of 12 or 13 i was playing at quite an elite level but i realized that some of my teammates were getting selected for the professional teams and i wasn't and and i thought well you know, I didn't completely give up on it, but I thought, well, maybe I can work in professional football, and that was what kind of led me down the osteopathy, uh, physiotherapy type path. Um, but also, also at the age of thirteen, my mum died. She died. She had breast cancer, and she died. Uh, yeah, when I was when I was thirteen, and so, you know, I think when that happens to you as a young person, or or at any age, it it, it immediately makes you think about things. Uh, Perhaps they're a bit more philosophical related to life and death and, and, uh, you know, religion, but spirituality as well. Um, And so I think that probably prompted me to think about those kinds of elements of life earlier than average. And so I was quite open to them. You know, I was interested in them. I'd read a few books. I'd met a few people that were very intriguing to me that were, you know, spiritual healers or um, just, you know, they might just be a massage therapists, but they had, you know, a kind of spiritual leaning, working with chakras or something, you know, that kind of thing. And I was open-minded to it. Um, but then I heard this kind of big, muscly, athletic, super intelligent guy up up the front of the class, Paul Czech standing there balancing on his Swiss ball talking about spirituality. And I was like, whoa, that was not what I was expecting from this guy, you know. Um, but I thought, how awesome is that, that he's got this holistic picture, you know, physical, em- emotional, mental, spiritual, and this kind of naturopathic take on things as well. And I was just sold. I was, you know, straight away, I was like, okay, I've got to do this training. Um, and so then I did the Check training from two thousand and one to two thousand and five and started to apply in my clinic and um, you know work with uh, of course you know all, all of the different types of people that come in from uh, you know your weekend warriors, your elite athletes to people with persistent pain and um, finally, in two thousand and four it would have been uh, I, I got uh, uh, some consultation work with Chelsea Football Club, so that was kind of you know I finally started to realize that dream of, of working in professional football um and uh yeah so that was that was the sort of early part the early section of my career and how i ended up going down the check path that i did
0: so do you want me to keep going
1: from there or do you want, <laughs> i'm aware it's a bit of a monologue
0: <laughs> no absolutely and just just so you know i love when people go off of that it's absolutely perfect <laughs> The less I say, the better it is for the listeners. (laughs) Believe me, I've read the previous reviews, so I've I've learned to stay quiet. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, continue on up until, so we're up to the first 2005. Maybe just one slight digression. Why osteopathy? Like at 17 years of age, like, was it just, was it just, uh, I, I know I want to work in sport. I know I want to do physio or osteo or mm-hmm. chiro. And it just happened that it was an osteopathy interview that you got. Like if if it had been on offer from physiotherapy school, would you have gone that route?
1: Yeah. So it's a great question, actually. Um, one of the things that uh, led me towards osteopathy was that my dad uh, was always a fan of osteopathy. He He got occasional back pain and it would it would be quite bad when he got it he'd be laid laid out for maybe a week or something but if he could get to an osteopath it seemed to always ease his back up very quickly and so he was a real believer in osteopathy and actually even even my grand, his his mum was a big believer in osteopathy for various reasons related to her having uh fertility issues having issues with the kids when they're unwell but she was I imagine quite open-minded for a lady back in the, back in the 1940s, taking her kids to osteopaths, but she, she did that and had all these amazing stories about, uh, you know, these uh, kind of healings almost that occurred. Um, and so, so there was, I guess there was a little bit of a family um, orientation towards it. Well, I'd never, I was one of the few people in my osteopathic class who had never had an osteopathic treatment. Um, I remember in the introductory you know week or so they they ask you, you know, so why are people here? And pretty much everyone had been to see an osteopath and fix their shoulder or fix their back or whatever. Um but there was just one or two of us out of sixty students that had never seen an osteopath and I was one of them. And um but but so for my work experience at school, um I went on a sports therapy uh, course, I went to sort of see how the course ran and what the sort of content was like. And the guy that was there actually was training as an osteopath, one of the, the tutors was training as an osteopath. Um, obviously he's a sports therapist already. And I was saying to him, you know, I'm interested in, in osteopathy and physiotherapy and chiropractic and what's your advice? And he's, he said, you know, I, I really have you know, investigated this and I feel that osteopathy has got the best mix of, of hands-on skills from his perspective and so that probably influenced me a little bit as well um, uh, but I went for interviews I didn't I didn't go to a chiropractic college but I went to uh three different osteopathic colleges and I think three or four uh physiotherapy schools um but ultimately when when we had to make the decision um it just felt to me like the osteopathy had something slightly more magical about it it's you know a little bit left the field and Uh, you know I had nothing against physiotherapy and I'm sure I would have loved going through that physio training but um, it was just there was something a little different about the osteopathy and and like I say I think my dad being a big fan of it probably was the thing that 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 tipped the balance in that direction but um, but yeah so that was why I went that path Um, but so yeah two thousand four two thousand and five I, I got to work with Chelsea as a consultant, um, which was you know one of my career highlights of course it's lovely to go in and suddenly you're there with these you know i was I was fortunate enough that I went straight in with the first team players, which uh you know I know a lot of people that get to work in professional sports they have to kind of work their way up um, so that was that was a great experience um i I was working quite a lot with Surrey cricket team as well at the time, and they were kind of the Manchester United of the cricket world at that point. I'm not sure how they're doing at the moment, actually, because I'm I'm not a huge cricket player myself. But um, but but anyway, they they had some great players, and and it was, again, just just great to work with professional sports people because obviously they're so motivated, um, and and it's nice to see that they're real human beings as well, you know, because they kind of have this this very distant status when you just see them as a poster on a wall or a, or a you know image on the screen. Um, I was saying to someone the other day that one of my realisations, you know, was sort of, I suppose it was just a slightly bizarre experience going into Chelsea Football Club and seeing all these faces you recognise. And, um, and them looking to you for your advice, you know, them looking up to you as if to say, do you think you can help me? And uh, you go, well, yeah, you know, there's this going on and that going on. and if We stretch this. And if you do this exercise and and then they're like, oh, that's great. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. And yet you, you realize, oh, yes, these are young men, you know, even though I was only 30 at the time. So I was looking back on it. I was quite young. I was older than most of them because they're professional footballers. Right. You know, so a lot of them in their early 20s, mid 20s. Um, so I guess they see someone walking in who's a little bit older, maybe able to help them, um, and, uh, and then seems to have a sense for what's going on. So they really look up to you. And that, that was, that was quite a bizarre experience in a way. Um, but, um, but right around that time, so I, I'd kind of finished the Czech training and what I had really wanted to do was to go on to become Czech faculty because I knew it would be a big sort of, uh, additional learning curve to the actual training, um, and I've enjoyed teaching. I've, I've taught at the osteopathic colleges since 1998, since I started my master's degree. You know, initially I would be just assisting another lecturer who was kind of heading up the class. Uh, Phil Beach was one of those lecturers, actually, I, I mentioned earlier, and um, he. Uh, so, like I mentioned, I was very inspired by him as a student, and so then when uh, I was asked to lecture. the college i said you know i said can i lecture with phil beach and they said oh no there's no spaces there because he was such a popular popular lecturer um and uh i think i had to wait a year or two but i got to end you know in the end uh teach alongside him so i it was kind of like getting free tutoring from uh, this great osteopath for, for several years in a row um you know such an innovative thinker um so um but yeah you know i taught at the osteopathic colleges enjoyed that um so I thought I'd love to do the same with the Czech system, and so in 2006 I was uh, assisting one of the faculty uh, who's teaching a course in New York, and so I'm out there attending the course, and this guy walks in wearing a pair of the original vibram five fingers or vibram five fingers, um, bright yellow pair and um and he's a black guy so they really you know looked awesome on his feet that's so cool (laughs) and i said to him i said oh that's amazing because i said i wrote to adidas in 1999 to say you should make a pair of toe shoes and um you know, the reason I picked Adidas was that they had a Taekwondo shoe, which was really flat to the ground, right? So it was, it was obviously for Taekwondo, right? So it was, it was kind of quite flexible, proprioceptive. And at the time, in the 90s, it was quite trendy. You, you buy a pair of those, wear them with your jeans, and it was considered quite cool to wear these Taekwondo shoes. And I, I wrote to um, Adidas and said, look, if you could if you could just tweak those so that you've actually got individualized toe compartments, then that will allow the toes to splay it will give you a broader base of support, which means that you're gonna have more stability. And if you've got a broader base of st- support, that means you can generate more power and the toes are highly proprioceptive. So, so if they can move independently, you'll be able to feel where you're at in space better. And I give them all this kind of rationale as to why it would be good. And um, didn't hear anything for a little while, probably a couple of months. And then I got a letter. This is again, before email, this is you know a letter to America and a letter comes back to me in the UK essentially saying, thank you for submitting your idea. You know, we'll, uh, we'll uh, pass this on to the legal department. I thought, oh, this is great. Um, and then the legal department, again, uh, probably a month later or something, they get a letter through saying, thank you for your submission. We, um, we're not going in this direction at the moment, but we will, we will keep your suggestion on file. And should we go down that pathway, then, uh, you know, we'll get back in touch. So I kind of thought, oh, okay, well, you know, I I, tr- I tried, <laughs> I gave it a go, <laughs> um, but nothing came of it. So um, so I just kind of parked that. Okay, you know, maybe that's not going to happen. Um, uh, and then, like I said, seven years later, there I am in New York, and this guy walks in wearing exactly what I had in my mind's eye. And um, I said, "Well, who makes them?" And he he said, "Oh, it's it's, it's vibrant." Um, and I was like, "Well, who are they? Are they are they anything to do with Adidas?" And he said oh, I don't know, you know, so first thing I was doing was I I was Googling it to see, see, you know, are they a subsidiary of Adidas or, you know, is there some connection here? But what I found actually was that there was, uh, you know, there's this whole sort of story of how they developed the shoes and um, uh, and I've met the guy who came up with the idea and interesting enough, he came up with it in 1999. So, you know, they they talk about this idea that there's a certain resonance, a certain maybe a thought form that's, particularly predominant at a certain time and, and certain people will tap into it I, I think i think there's been research done it to show that whenever there's a new breakthrough uh you know uh, product or creation it's almost invariably invented at this at the, within the same time frame two or three times around the world sometimes more but you know whoever gets it to market first or has the best financing or whatever tends to be the person that that, that gets known for it you know um, but anyway, so. So it was it was quite a nice kind of full circle thing where, uh, first of all, the, you know, I'd seen the, these shoes, but then I was writing a chapter for a medical textbook, which Leon Chato had asked me to, to write. Uh, and Leon was someone who, um, you know, in physical therapy circles, very, very famous guy. He wrote over 80 books and textbooks, and he ran the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies, which was this really well which is this really great journal it's still running he, he died a couple of years ago sadly but um the his whole vision with the journal was to create something which was as the as the title kind of implies kind of broad spectrum it was it was not just like the osteopathic journal because he was he was an osteopath and naturopath as well um so he could have called it the osteopathic naturopathic journal but he called it no the journal of body work because that encompasses Everything right the, in terms of hands-on approaches and movement therapies So again encompasses everything from what I do as a Czech professional to Pilates instructors yoga instructors Feldenkrais and so on, right, so um, And I really really loved his his journal, but he and I had crossed paths because firstly I'd published a paper about my hamstring research from my master's degree in that journal um, but also it was the era of uh, Yahoo forums, you know, so there were all these Yahoo forums springing up and there, I, I, I started one, which was an osteopathic forum. Um, and then there was another osteopathic forum that he contributed to as well. And, um, you know, our paths crossed several times and, and you know, like all forums, there's always debate and there's always kind of criticism and and people that support you people that don't, but, I pretty much invariably got strong support from Leon. If someone was attacking me, jump in and say, well, actually what Matt's saying there makes a lot of sense to me because of X, Y, Z. So we had a kind of similar modus operandi um, and way of viewing the world, you know, way way of viewing patients um, and the professions. And so uh, he invited me to write this chapter, uh, which... Essentially, because he could see the kind of style of my contributions to these forums, he knew that rehabilitation and conditioning was an area I was really interested in and probably had a, a higher level of expertise than most osteopaths and and uh and therapists. So he said, right, you know, I'd like you to do a chapter in, in a, a naturopathic textbook. So it being a kind of natural medicine, I looked quite deeply into evolutionary principles again, tying him with Phil Beach, tying him with Paul Czech, but also tying him with nature right you know it's naturopathy is natural you know h- how's the body naturally evolved to function has it evolved to function with a big fat running shoe or has it evolved to function barefoot you know that kind of concept so i dug out some research and put it into the chapter and this chapter was pretty much ready to be published uh, in the middle of 2006 and then i see the, the vibram five fingers on this this guy's feet and went out and bought a pair in new york and just fell in love with them. Thought these are fantastic. You know, this is exactly what I imagined, and you know, it feels just like being barefoot, but just with that little bit of protection. And um, so I wrote to, to to Vibram and said to them, um, look, love your products. I've just written a chapter for a medical textbook. And if you'd like me to feature the product, either, you know, an image of them, or if you'd like me to get my models to wear them for the exercises, then I'll happily feature them because I think it's just a great product. It's exactly what I'm talking about in my rehabilitation chapter. Um, and so they wrote back and said, yeah, you know, we'd be happy to send you a couple of uh, couple of samples, but um, what, what do you mean? What benefits are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, this is... Um, you know, there's quite a lot of research on on barefoot, and uh, you know, there's benefits in terms of venous return and lymphatic return. There's benefits in terms of foot strength. You know, just the notion that if you if you work something, it gets stronger, and if you don't work it, it gets weaker. You know, um, there's benefits in terms of uh, posture. You know, when you've got a heel on a shoe, it tends to, to tip you forward, so you have to activate certain muscles to lean you back again, and that messes around with your postural balance. I gave him a few you know maybe maybe five or six bullet points and uh the ceo of vibram uh or i should say, i should say he wasn't ceo he was the he was the um i forget his exact title he, i think he was ceo of vibram usa so he's their usa uh, department guy and he said well that's really interesting matt have you got any references for that and i said well yeah you know this is a medical textbook i need to have references so I, i'll send them through and from that discussion essentially it became obvious that uh, that there was a medical market and a kind of conditioning market for the shoes but they at that point Vibram was seeing them really as, as sailing shoes um so they never expected them to be exercise related or, or, or rehab related or anything um <clears throat> so i guess um the next part of the story that's that's kind of relevant and ties a few things together is that um I'm trying to remember this 2006 or 2007, but I I put on a big event with a colleague of mine um, called Chris Murphy. Chris, Chris is a physio and he used to run a a business called physio.co.uk, which was essentially the biggest provider of CPD or one of the biggest providers of CPD for physios and osteos and chiros in the UK. Um, And he would get the very sort of best people, the leading lights in that world to come and present and um what we decided to do is we're going to put on an evening presentation where we would get um a representative from each of the key professions and we would have a debate and we decided we'd call this event who owns low back pain and so (laughs) And, and the idea being that it sounded kind of like which profession owns low back pain, but of course the ultimate message was that it's the patient that owns the back pain. <laughs> it's not the profession, and so it's about getting the patient to take ownership of it and and giving them the tools to take ownership of it. Which is really the whole sort of check thrust. It always has been that that's uh, the process that we we encourage through the check uh, training. So we had Paul Check there. We had Diane Lee there. We had um, an osteopath, a chiropractor. Um, diane's obviously a physio um we had an orthopedic surgeon and we actually had lynn mctaggart there who's uh kind of in this investigative journalist who you know wrote the book um what what doctors don't tell you in the magazine what doctors don't tell you and then she's written several best-selling books since then including the field which is a fantastic book kind of exploring the world of energy and quantum science and uh you know a, a lot of kind of more again potentially esoteric stuff, but but really bringing a lot of the science to it in a, an understandable way. Um, so we did this, and um, yeah, it was, it was a great evening. Uh, but what we did was we invited Vibram to come along. It must have been 2006, actually, thinking about it, because it was before we, uh, we started distributing the shoes, um, uh, which was 2007. And so... They sent along a guy with a massive holdle of about 60 pairs of, of, of five fingers, without boxes or anything. It was just like five, you know, all these five fingers held together with elastic bands, and um, just he said, "Well, look, we'll, we'll see what we can do and see what we can sell in the in the break." So um, we literally had a 15 or 20 minute break in the evening, and uh, we had 600 people there. So it was really good turnout to the events. But uh, we sold out the Five Fingers within that 15 minute spell. So it was just, it was amazing. It was, it was fantastic. And Vibram themselves were just blown away and said, yeah, okay, there's a market for this. We need to look at this kind of medical rehab conditioning market. Um, and, uh, and ultimately I, I became the distributor. I got the dis- distribution rights to the UK for the Vibram Five Fingers. So that all kicked off in 2007. Um, and uh, yeah so in the interim you know i'm training up and teaching for the institute working clinically um uh the the, the five fingers uh, opportunity came along so i set up a business with a group of friends basically i knew i couldn't i was so busy with everything i was doing i knew i couldn't uh run a shoe business as well so i got my stepbrother and my best mates from school and my my brother and my pa and we had a kind of Group of us that just took different sections of running the business, and um, and we we got it off the ground, um, and you know quite quickly got some good good traction with it. You know we got we got it on um, various TV shows and in various papers and and so on, and uh, that business really grew from two thousand seven to two thousand and twelve. It was in really very strong growth, um, and actually caused us a lot of problems. Um, the growth because we couldn't fund it. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of think that if your business is in growth, that's a good thing. Uh, and of course it is, but, but it's, it's better than it being in shrinkage, but, but it still have, it comes with its own problems. And, and the, the big challenge we had was that by the time we needed investment, it was about 2008, towards the end of 2008, uh, maybe, maybe beginning of 2009, and we just had the credit crunch. And essentially, no one would lend any money Right, The banks weren't lending money, Uh, you couldn't find investors very easily at all. One of the issues was it wasn't our own product. If we were Vibram and asking for investment, we might have got investment, but because we're the distributor, it's a lot more risky to invest in a distributor who doesn't own the rights to the product. So that was a challenge. Um, So we kind of muddled through those early years, essentially borrowing money from friends, uh, bigger and bigger lump sums of money, and eventually got to a point where we, we could get the banks to sort of work with us and do uh, a kind of financing, which is called invoice financing, where essentially, you know, the shoes come in, you send them out to your, your clients and the banks send you the money for that straight away. As soon as the clients have, have received or the customers received the shoes, the banks pay you straight away. And that money then allows you to buy the next batch of shoes in for the next month. You know so that we, that was the mechanism that we used but unfortunately what happened was we grew so quickly and and the market grew and of course there's lots of media attention because it's all this sort of barefooting thing it was controversial they looked a bit wacky so they got you know lots of press attention uh, it was very counter-narrative to the idea that we need cushioned shoes and supportive shoes And so it was like I say controversial a lot of, lot of sort of um, uh, opinions flying around of course um, and that's great for PR. You know, it's great for marketing. And so we we, we grew the business to the point where we had um, three point five million pounds worth of pre-orders for 2012. Uh, and by this stage, we had about 20 people working with us. So we had, I think, uh, eight sales reps. We had a PR company that worked with us, and we were kind of working closely with three or four of their members. Um, we had, I think, six people in the office. And so on, so you know so it was quite quite busy, and um, you know the running costs for the business were about fifty thousand pounds a month, so it was you know fairly expensive to run the business obviously paying all those salaries and and so on um, but so we had taken these sales and got some real major high street players on board um you know. A lot of the big sports uh, brands were were, were going to stock them, JD Sports, um, people like uh, some outdoor brands. It's been a while since I've thought about them actually, so I'm I'm trying to dig them out from my my, my memory. But Snow and Rock was one of them. Um, Cotswolds was another. Then we had sort of more fashion brands like Soul Trader. You know, Amazon were kind of dipping their toe in the water a little bit, but they weren't they weren't a big player at that point um and so yeah some other good online retailers but the 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 point was is that the shoes the way those kinds of stores work is that they place an order for january delivery uh let's say you know someone like cotswold they might order in 300 pairs for january okay good so 300 pairs go in uh and then 400 pairs for February because it's a slightly bigger selling month and then 500 pairs for march and so so they've got these orders we've placed those orders um but we can't afford to buy them in because we didn't make enough money the year before. Um, but we can't. So we, uh, what I mean by that is, we we could buy them in month by month, but we could certainly couldn't buy them all in all in one go. So anyway, the January stock doesn't arrive, and so we're like this is this is the problem. We're fighting fires. We're speaking to these new retailers. we just got on board these real sort of uh, you know blue chip retailers that we really want to keep happy, um, and then we get into February and then the news comes through, Well, there's been another delay. And ultimately what happened was our January stock arrived or was ready for pickup in April. So, you know, not only is that terrible service, but now the shops don't want their January stock, but you've ordered it as the distributor. So you, you, you are essentially contractually bound to take that stock, right? <laughs> So, but in addition to that, because the stock didn't come in in January, we didn't get any revenue from the stock. But it cost us fifty thousand pounds to run the business, right? And then the same in February, and the same in March. And by the time you get to April, you're nearly two hundred thousand pounds down, and and you haven't sold any shoes yet. And then they're asking you to not only buy in the April stock, but to buy in the January, February, March, and April stock. <laughs> so we were in just in all. I mean, we we nearly went bankrupt, of course, at that point. And the only way we could salvage it was by lots of liaising back and forth and and meetings out in in Milan which is the headquarters for for Vivram. and um, ultimately they they agreed that you know they knew that they were accountable for the lateness of deliveries and they would give us a credit line so they gave us this credit line to to essentially mean we could have the stock but we had to pay them back on a certain schedule and so on so we did that and um, the 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 good thing about it was, of course, that we could get the market kind of going again. But we had already essentially lost uh, confidence from all of our new retailers. Uh, some of our old retailers that you know were pre-existing, they kind of uh, were more understanding. But it, it really, it really created a big issue for us. And ultimately, that year, you know, we had, like I say, about three and a half million pre-orders, uh, or three and a half million pounds worth of pre-orders, um, and we only sold one point four million. That year, uh, so it kind of gives you a sense for what an impact it had, um, and, and that's pre-orders as well. So when you think pre-orders is what's guaranteed to sell, and then you have kind of ready stock that you sell, you know, when people want to top up or just you know because people uh, you know are approaching you at that moment in time, and um, and so we probably would have had about a five million pound turnover if if it had all run smoothly, but we have one point four, and the market essentially, there, you know, a couple of factors. What One was we let the market down. So, you know, we started to lose retailers. But the other factor was that um, the, well, two more factors. One is that just the media interest was beginning to wane a bit. You know, that we've been talking about at that stage, Barefoot had been quite a big media interest for about three years. It had been 2009. I think the book Born to Run came out, 2010. It was becoming, you know, sort of much more, uh, I guess, prol- oh, what's the word? I was going to say proliferate. I don't think that's the word, but prolific is probably the word, prolific. You know, a lot, a lot of people have read it. A lot of runners have read it. And essentially, it describes the whole evolutionary story and really questions the idea of whether we need running shoes. Um, and so, you know, that really sparked a lot of interest in the media and, and also from the consumers but by the time it got to 2012, I would say that's probably roughly when it peaked, and and then the media interest started to wane. But also Vibram got taken to court, and this is quite an interesting story because Vibram got taken to court by a lady in the US whose name I forget. Um, and the the really fascinating element of it was that she took them to court because her feet didn't get stronger. That was her primary concern, you know, and Vibram were always a b2b company which means business to business so they provided soles for other shoe manufacturers so they would provide soles for say Timberland or you know uh, Merrill, someone like that and then Merrill would make the shoe right so Merrill had the b2c relationship They're from business to customer or consumer but vibram always b2b with the five fingers that was the first time they they had ab to b2b B, sorry b2c um, company or, or relationships. So they weren't used to marketing to the consumer. They weren't, they didn't have the networks for distribution, which was how I ended up becoming a distributor. so you know, someone with no experience and uh, you know, but a bit of expertise in, in what the shoes are good for, but no experience in distribution. Um, but so, um, just trying to think where I was going with that. Um, yeah, so they had made claims on their marketing, which were reasonable, but we're not backed up by evidence. So they, and, and they've done it in a way. So they said things, things like beating five fingers, bullet point improves posture, enhances running efficiency, um, strengthens feet. Right. And they're totally reasonable proposals, but to say that it does that means you have to have evidence and they didn't have evidence for it. They, I mean, there's lots of evidence that running barefoot strengthens your feet and that it you know, going barefoot can improve your posture versus being in a heeled shoe, you know, so that there's evidence there. And you could extrapolate that to wearing a five finger, which is almost identical to being barefoot and say, well, so it's likely that when you're a five finger, you're going to have the same benefits, but you can't say that the five fingers, wearing the five fingers make your feet strong. Um, although a colleague of mine did point out, it's a bit like saying, well, a dumbbell doesn't make your arms strong. You've got to use it to make your arms strong, right? Um, and, and I think part of the issue with, with this was that, so this woman was just suing Vibram to say my feet didn't get any stronger, um, and uh, you know, so that's a false advertising claim. And so I'm looking at this going, wait a minute, this is, this, you know, Vibram are like a multinational company, and supposedly there's this individual woman who has not even been injured, and she's suing them because her feet didn't get stronger. I mean, what? that smells of a rat to me. Like, There's something not quite right about that. Anyway, it turns out that the company that sued Vibram, the, the law firm, they're renowned for doing this. They sued Red Bull for not giving you wings, right? They sued other footwear brands as well for other claims that they made, and perhaps some of those were reasonable, but, but, but this company sued <laughs> Red Bull for not giving you wings and won the case. Right? Because that was as you'll remember, that was their strap line. Um uh but so it turns out in corporate America that what happens is whenever a company raises its head above the parapet and starts making a profit, there are law firms that are looking for all of their claims to see if there's money, because they know there's money in the in the bank account. How can we create a claim against this this company? And so they you'd have thought they'd have because there are people that have been injured in five fingers just like in any running shoe you know the people get stress fractures in normal running shoes but if you found someone who had a stress fracture in their foot and happened to have been wearing five fingers at least that would have been a more kind of you know believable case <laughs> this woman just her feet hadn't got stronger <laughs> anyway the point being that, that you know what that ended up with was um no one, no one, no journalists were digging into the detail of it. What they were saying is, oh, Vibram sued over Barefoot Shoe, you know. And so that kind of created, you know, over false claims and all this kind of stuff. So it creates a bit of a negative vibe. And I think that didn't help the sales as well. But, you know, all the all the way through that period, you know, and, and the years that followed from sort of 2013, 14, 15, there we are trying to sort of, downsize the business because it's getting smaller we're having to let people go we're having to you know sort of um consolidate um fighting a lot of fires uh so fairly stressful um but we had a reasonable business we're selling about twenty thousand units of five fingers per year there or thereabouts you know sometimes a little bit more sometimes a little less but we hadn't been able to repay our old debt and so, you know, we of the the money that we owed, I think it started out about three hundred fifty thousand that we owed Vibram. We got it down to about two hundred and twenty. Um, so, you know, we made a bit of a dent in it. Um, but this was now like twenty sixteen. So, you know, we, we we still had a long way to go, and Vibram were getting a bit shirty about it, understandably. But it's very difficult to repay debt when your when your business is shrinking, you know. Um, and so, we. Um, we then heard in, in uh, September of 2016 that, that Vibram had made an executive decision to bring Amazon in-house, uh, and so, you know, how it worked was as the UK distributor, um, we would have um, worked directly, and we did with with Amazon.co.uk, you know, France with Amazon.fr, etc. You know, so so we each worked with the national Amazon branch, if you like. And the thing for us was that because we had let our high street retailers down so badly in 2012, a lot of our business had gone online. And as a result of that, of course, Amazon were really beginning to roll with the shoes and start to build momentum. And so by the time it got to 2016, they were worth 27% of our business. So they're were, they were more than a quarter of our total business. And, um, Bibram just made the decision. We're going to take all Amazon accounts in house, uh, So we're taking them away from the distributors and we were saying, well, you know, the issue with that is that that's 27% of our business. And, you know, we've worked hard to achieve that. And, you know, really we should, should we not be compensated for that? You know, uh, if you want to take them, it was about, it was about uh, 250 grand's worth of of business, something like that per year. And then we made the point well, look, we owe you 250 grand. So maybe you could wipe out debt because that's going to be you know this amazon contract is going to be worth 250 grand in the first year to you and in fact more than that because obviously they're making more profit themselves than we are but but the point being that um they said no also what happened was brexit happened that year and that meant that our 250 grand or 220 grand it was sorry 220 that we owed that jumped right back up to about 330 because the pounds slumped against the dollar and we owed them in dollars, this is the thing. So with that kind of business, quite often everything's done in US dollars. So we found ourselves you know, at the end of 2016 with our debt just jumped right back up to where it was originally. We had more than a quarter of our business taken away and it just so happened that there was a uh, another distributor sniffing around at the time. So it was kind of a perfect storm and Vibram said, we're gonna have to Call in your debt, which essentially means writing a letter to you to say you must pay by this date, or our contract is null and void. And that's what they did. That's what they did. So you know, February, I think it's February 2017, uh, the business essentially shuts, um, uh, went into insolvency is the technical term. Um, and so that was the end of that business. So um, uh, you know, it was uh, it was ten years, and it was great fun, and you know, learned a lot and really enjoyed it um obviously it provided a little bit of income for me in the second five years in the first five years not so much or <laughs> well, not at all um but um but you know it, it's one of those things sort of philosophically you just got to see it as uh you know a life, a, a, you know major life experience it was, it, was, it was great while it lasted and uh you know i got to a lot of, meet a lot of cool people around the world and get involved in uh you know product design and a whole different field that i've you know, I'd never been involved in before. Um, so, you know, but all during that time, I was still seeing clients, uh, I was still teaching for the Czech Institute. Um, one thing that I skipped by was that in 2009, I, I got asked to join the editorial board on the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapy. So this is Leon Chato's uh, journal and to essentially write an editorial uh, twice a year. And so I've written for them, twice a year for the last uh, 11 years now, uh, which has been great. And, um, you know, quite uh, quite time demanding in some ways, but it really keeps you honest in terms of you have to stay up to speed with the research and, you know, keeps you creative as well because you've got to think about what you're going to write next and, and, and where the energy is at and what's of interest to people at the moment. And uh, so that's been great. That's, that's really, you know, I've enjoyed doing that. Um, so yeah you know it's it's uh yeah great for professional development i think any kind of presenting any kind of writing uh again it just keeps you on top of things because you you have to be well versed enough that you, you you can write about something or talk about something and um of course you can't know everything so then when you do present or you do write you often get critiqued or 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 you get questions asked like well what happens in this context or what happens you know so and so says that and you're like oh okay and it stimulates you to look further and to dig deeper and to find out what you know what makes more sense to me here is it, is it this person's view or that person's view or this piece of research or whatever so I think from a professional development perspective uh you know writing presenting and teaching is one of the best ways to learn um, so that's uh I think that that probably summarizes most of my journey uh as far as 2017, you know, up to to 2017 and then really the last three years I've been refocusing my business a bit onto the clinical sides, you know, so I, like I say, I always worked clinically right throughout the whole era when I was working with with Vibram, but, you know, sometimes it might've been as little as 10% of my time was was, uh, clinical and 90% was on the shoe business um but i'd say probably on average across that time span it was maybe about 30 70 split in terms of 30% clinical and uh, 70% on the shoes but yeah so um so the last 3 years i've really been focusing on rebuilding clinical work um and uh developing my website i've you know i've launched a podcast in the last year done a bunch of webinars and things like that and uh, and just also have taken on a role with the Czech institute as there their head of education. So developing the the, the programs there with the Czech Institute. So so that's kind of been the journey, I would say.
0: (laughs) Now, great stuff. And you you answered my follow-up question was since February 2017, like the past three years, but you brought us right up to speed. Just a a quick um, question, just regarding research around the benefits of barefoot running. Yeah. like uh, and this is just because i currently haven't gone back and investigated this area but is there actually good research to show evidence for benefits of berberine? as in like was there a control group what were the conditions like do you know offhand or any particular researchers researcher whose work has been very dedicated to that area because that is like listen i i got i well they weren't actually vibrams i think they were an adidas pair but i got finger shoes and yeah i've gotten like the new balance fevrums you know them ones i had loads of pairs i always did love them and it was just—I always got the impression that people were just like parrots. They were like, "Oh, you know, you don't heel strike. You, you know, you, yeah. you're you're forcing yeah. it on your forefoot. Your yeah. your posture's better. You know, it, it takes you out of an anterior tilt. You're more upright. You know what I mean?" And uh-huh. and everyone was just like, "Oh, it's just it's just way better." Have you read Chris McDougall's book? And it's just you know, yeah. everyone everyone was just kind of just repeating and like there was no yeah, critical yeah. thinking. And listen, I was guilty of it too. Like like I was starting to tell people, "Oh, you see those New Balance? They're like the the." the ASICs and the, the, the like real old school new balance with the big heels like, they're terrible for you. They, they throw your center of gravity forward. you know, yeah. you st- blah, 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 blah. but I like, listen, I was just being a par too. but is there actually good evidence? And again, I just, I haven't gone into yeah. PubMed pub well, or Google the, Center. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Look, there's, there's a
1: lot of good evidence um, to support the fact that barefoot running is something that humans are well adapted to doing. Um, and, but, but, that doesn't mean that we can't heel strike in a pair of running shoes you know so so i think that's where if you we, even when we were doing the five fingers you know we, of course we want to sell them but but we used to talk about barefoot zealots you know people that really just it's all about being either barefoot or because some people would say the vibrams are no good they're they're, they're still providing cushioning they're still providing grip that you know the, you can't feel the ground and again i agree with that to some degree um so the the interesting element there is that you know of course if your skin is against the ground and you've got some kind of uh, funky gait pattern where you're flicking your foot out as you're running, or you've got uh, maybe you're overstriding, which means that you're kind of bounding along a bit too much and not taking more pitter patter type uh, approach to running, well, you're going to know about that really quickly if you're barefoot because you will tear your skin or you'll wear through it or you get a blister, right? So, so barefoot is the best in terms of finding out a kind of optimal efficient running style which is why so many of the elite runners started out barefoot because they've really honed and refined their styles and that means that you know when they are then sponsored by adidas or nike or whoever then they they retain that style into the running shoe right and did you know the story of the, the the nike rifts no so the nike rifts are the shoe the, some some people will know them but they're they're the the nikes that they are so the nike Air rifts uh, so they've got an air sole in them, but they've got uh, a separate big toe, right? And they were, again, they were quite trendy for a while. They, they, they were kind of something that people wear as a fashion statement, as well as to play sports in. But the, the reason they're called the Rifts is that when Nike sponsored a lot of their, um, what would it be, uh, East African runners, you know, especially from Kenya and Ethiopia, the runners hated their shoes because they found their toes were being compressed, and so a lot of these runners were coming from the Rift Valley area of of Africa, and so Nike actually made uh, this shoe on on their request that kept the big toe separate from the rest of the the, the the toes, so that they didn't get so compressed and confined in the shoes, and they called them the Nike Air Rifts. So, so that um, I've, I've gone a little bit off path of your original question, but but um, the the I guess the where I was going to take it was to say you know, when we're talking about barefoot zealots, of course the shoe, the shoe, archeologically speaking, seemed to emerge in the archeological records somewhere around 40 years ago, sorry 40 years ago, 40,000 years ago, right? And that means that um, it happens to coincide perfectly with when our ancestors moved from Southern Europe to Northern Europe and towards Siberia. So the question is, is, you know, did the invention of the shoe allow people to move into colder climates or was it moving into colder climates that allowed the shoe to be invented like like necessity is the mother of of invention right and so um you know if you're in a colder climate like you know we are (laughs) in in the uk or in ireland or or, you know mid northern europe certain parts of well you you know you 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 catch my drift but the, the point is that you know, it's not a great idea to be out running barefoot in the snow or, or on frost or in the ice. That's, that's you know, we, we didn't really evolve to handle that. Our feet didn't really evolve to handle that. Um, but so, yeah, in terms of research, lots of research papers on it now. There's a guy actually called Joe Warren, uh, who is uh, now Dr. Joe Warren. He's at Dublin University, I believe, uh, did his PhD on, on barefoot running. And he's an elite runner himself. He's an elite, I think he's the Irish champion.
0: I, I actually know, I actually know, Joe, I used to work with him years ago, but again, I, I never had a chance to really delve deep into his work. I know he's done a ton of research all around foot biomechanics.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, and he has some amazing findings, really, really intriguing findings in terms of the improvements in running efficiency after wearing minimalist footwear or going barefoot. Um, but they weren't, they, the interesting thing was, was that, and I think this is the thing with, with all researchers, that you can get an incredible finding like he found that elite runners were eight uh, percent more efficient after i think it was four weeks of training in the five fingers than than the control group that that just ran in their normal running shoes and he's like wow eight percent i mean at elite, an elite level that's an incredible difference but when he replicated that study with non-elite runners he found practically no difference so he's kind of looking at going well this is this is, this is difficult to work out. And, he, and you know, he was looking at the kinematics, at the force plate dynamics, all kinds of stuff. And he couldn't clearly define anything that was different for, you know, between the runners that had worn the five fingers and the runners that had worn their standard running shoes. All he could assume was that it was some kind of neuromuscular efficiency thing. So they just got that little bit more efficient from a neuromuscular perspective and therefore wasting less energy and were more efficient in their running. So, so certainly it's not injurious in, in that way. One of the things I always used to say is that there's this gap between ontogeny and phylogeny and, and what I mean by that is, is ontogeny is your development as an individual and phylogeny is the development of species. So you can make an argument for being barefoot because it's how we evolved to function. That's A phylogenic argument like every animal's barefoot humans were barefoot humans are born barefoot therefore humans should be barefoot right that that's a that's quite a good argument okay but then you've got the ontogenic argument and that is that have you been barefoot your whole life and if you have you're almost certainly very well adapted to being barefoot but most of us have worn shoes all our life and that means that we're not well adapted you know and we're much more likely to get injured if we just jump straight into a 5k or a 10k in a pair of minimalist shoes or, or, or barefoot
0: yeah that 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 seemed to have been a major issue and uh you know it's kind of like people threw the baby out with the bat water oh i hear this barefoot running things the new thing and they just like all they had worn up to that point were very supportive cushion shoes and then they just completely yeah. swapped them out for like minimal footwear and then they were like uh i'm getting like achilles uh tendonitis and i'm getting all these injuries like yeah because you went from like a really supportive structured shoe and like your foot's very untrained to like yeah, do, do yeah, the yeah. same amount of training volume and mileage that you were doing previously with a completely like unsupported shoe and it's not to say that an unsupported shoe is bad. It's just that you yeah. weren't you weren't physically ready to get the benefit from the shoe because you've worn such a such a supportive shoe up until that point. Again exactly. it's, it's it's like I in context is 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 king really at the end of the day. So um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
1: We always used to give the example of, uh, you know, broken arm, because most people can relate to that. They've either had a broken arm or they've seen someone with a broken arm. And the idea that when it's broken, you, you know, you want to support it. Of course, you know, you don't, don't want it to be flapping around with, with a break in it. So you support the arm whilst it's injured. And then within six to eight weeks, that plaster comes off and you, you've lost somewhere around 40 to 50% of your muscle mass. So it's, it, your, your arm has withered significantly in that period of time, Right. And most people have seen that when the plaster comes off this kind of weedy little Tyrannosaurus type arm. <laughs> um, and um, but, but so that's kind of the equivalent of what happens to the foot. If you support the foot too much, it gets relatively atrophied compared to how it would be if it if it's supporting itself. OK, but then the, the, the important element here is that you wouldn't say to someone who has uh, just had their plaster off their arm now you should go and do handstands to make your arm strong, right? You you, you would want to build it up gradually. You're going to do it very sensibly uh, because you know, if they went and did a hand, handstand and walked around on their hand, they'd almost certainly break it again, right? <laughs> you know, or injure themselves in some way, strain a muscle or something. So you, you would not do that. So it's a really bad idea to, to apply the same thinking to the foot that just, you know, take off your, your cushion supportive running shoes and go barefoot running. That's, that's not a smart move. You know, you want to build into it.
0: Yeah. You want to, uh, you want a steady progressive overload.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. I won't keep you too much longer. Listen, it's been phenomenal to hear your background story. Um, just a, a question for me, as you were relating to myself and the listeners, your whole background story there with Februm and mm. everything that, that went on during that time period, just personally from yourself, how did you deal like with like no doubt like that was a lot of stress and i know i know stress affects every organism differently because it really comes down to the organism's perception of stress you know yeah. and even yeah. what, what you know obviously what's perceived as 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 um as stressful to one individual can actually be a stress or a beneficial stress to someone else it, it all comes down to perception but how if you do have any recollection or if you can remember how did you cope with that time period during life? Because it does sound to, you know, an external sort of person like myself that no doubt that was quite stressful. And just in terms of your background from, you know, you said, you know, you're you're quite spiritually, quite holistic, and of course you would be if you're faculty with with the Czech Institute. Mm. You know, like how basically, how did you, what was your self-management strategies like during that time period? Sure, sure.
1: Well, I mean, I think, First of all, I I had a degree of uh, faith in the sort of fatalistic view of life that, that, uh, you know, it's happening for a reason kind of thing. Um, And when I contemplated that, you know, what you start to see is that actually for the 10 years I was doing the Five Fingers Project, as much as it was fun, uh, like I said earlier, I always was slightly uncomfortable with the idea that I was investing so much time into selling shoes. You know, I believed in the shoes. I believed in the concept, I believed they're helping people in, in general, you know, and that they were fun and cool and, and all of those things. But, um, you know, when it came to actually going to retailers and and trying to sell them a batch of shoes or going to a show and trying to sell shoes to the general public, I just kind of felt like it wasn't really me. It wasn't really, a, a, what I was trained to do, B, what I was good at, you know. Um, and so, but when I stand up and present on Vibram Five Fingers and it, explain all of, you know, some of the stuff we were just talking about and show some research and talk about, you know, force plate data and that kind of stuff, then I come alive. And that's, that's kind of, that's what I love to do. So I guess, you know, it afforded me the opportunity to to kind of get out of that. It's a bit of a get out of jail card in some ways because I I had felt – a little bit trapped by the commitment to to that shoe business because it was a lot of time, um, and um, yeah, you know, I I just feel that I knew I knew it was quite emotionally stressful for me, even even though, um, even though I had that kind of philosophical underpinning to it. Um, when you've put ten years into anything, and and the, you know, of course, the dream with it was that it would grow massively and that we'd get, become wealthy and you know and that all the hard work would be worthwhile and you kind of get to the end of it with a bit of a sour taste in your mouth going well you know I spent five years building it and essentially not really building my clinical work you know keeping the clinical work going but you know you it's, it's interesting I met with some of my osteopathic colleagues last year because it was 20 years since I don't know it would have been it would have been it actually it would have been 2017 when, when the business closed because it was 20 years since we graduated and, um, you know, one of my colleagues, it was, it was, it was really nice of him to say, it. actually, he said, but he said, Matt, he said, you've, um, you've really done something a bit different to most of us. And I said, yeah, I suppose so. He said, you really sort of walked the path less traveled. And I said, yeah, no, I, I suppose I have, I hadn't really thought about it, but you know, there, there was a part of me that recognized that all of them have their osteopathic clinics. They've got busy client bases and they, they kind of, doing what many osteopaths do, Monday to Friday, seeing clients, some of them have a Friday off now because they can you know, afford to have that day off and they've got establishment in, in their business that they, they kind of know what they're doing. And I'm kind of almost reinventing myself and restarting and working out what I, I I'm, I'm here in my clinic room, which is in the front room of my house. Because you know, when you lose a business, my, my business was in the warehouse where we had the shoes. You know, um, I had, a, had an office there uh, and all my exercise equipment in the warehouse. So now my exercise equipment's in the garden and I've got my front room, which was a bedroom. But, you know, we're about to move house, about to move into a new place with a lovely view and I'm gonna have a garden office and I, it's gonna feel like I've kind of upgraded to a place that kind of represents more where I'm at in my career. Um, but, but, but I suppose my point being that, you know, for that colleague of mine to, to, to say that, you know, you always have choices in life, don't you? And you can go on an adventurous path like the one I have where I've, you know, I took osteopathy instead of physiotherapy because I thought it was a bit more magical. And then I did the naturopathy as well because it seemed to make more sense to me than just osteopathy. And then, you know, the check thing came along and it was like, wow, this is a key component that's missing from what I'm doing and it's spiritual. And then I did the teaching and then I did the five fingers and I've written and so on and that, you know, you could say, well, you've just distracted yourself for 20 years, but but it's been a really rich experience. And yeah, I could have a probably a better business right at this moment in time in terms of income, in terms of turnover, if I just graduated and become an osteopath and just worked at building my own practice. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't give any of that away. And and also, I kind of feel like I'm beginning to blossom into my clinical work now as well, and and that uh, I'm I'm at a level. I wanted to be at you know that I can really help people it's not it's not about sort of the ego side of it and saying oh I'm better than this person or I can help more people than that person in terms of you know like a league table it's more about you know can you can you help the person in front of you and do you really believe that the tools you have are the best tools for that person you know and and I can say quite confidently that that I do have those tools now and of course you need to know when to refer out you know what your own limitations are and so on um but i feel so much more competent and capable of helping people having gone through that whole journey than i think i would have done if i just stayed primarily working as an osteopath you know um so so yeah you know it's been a rich journey and i guess that's that's you know in some ways uh uh you could say a purposeful life not not to play down anyone else's life or or anyone else's choices to to perhaps you know just stick with one thing because uh, there's there's pros and cons to all of them and i think that's that's ultimately what you have to decide is, is what do you want do you want the stability uh, and a bit more rigidity with it or do you want the flexibility uh you know and p- potentially a bit more personal growth with it or whatever um so so yeah
0: yeah, it's it's all part of the journey, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As uh, as Conor McGregor's coach, John Kavanaugh, uh said, and it's also the title of a book: "You're either right or you learn." Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I know, I know. Paul actually said that in in his podcast episode with you, the the first podcast that you guys did together. Listen, oh, yeah. um, winners and learners, he likes to say, doesn't he? Winners yeah, yeah, winners. Learn. Yeah, you're either you're oh, either, either winner or you learn. Sorry, not, sorry, that's the title I'm pretty sure of John's book. you oh, okay, okay. you either win or you learn. Yeah. yeah so you're either winner or you learn. So it's, it's a good mindset to have. Um, yeah. that sort of gri- that growth mindset as Carl Zweck talks about. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, listen, I'd love to have you back on again because there's so much that we didn't get to today. I, I really would love to know more about your process when you work with clients, you know, everything from assessment sure. to to sort of treatment, sort of maybe your philosophy and principles around sort of treatment and optimizing human health and wellness performance. And I know sure. I'm well aware that health and performance can mean two completely different things and are two completely different things If if, if you're comparing like elite sport performance to like health and longevity they live on two completely different ends of the spectrum so it'd be great to get your insights into into that and um, so i'll definitely we'll definitely get you back on for part two i'll talk to you about that after we hop off here just uh, one or two just final quick uh, questions for you and um, just in terms of your current reading what are you currently reading and what currently would be your top reading recommendation? So, <laughs> what are you currently reading, and what would be your top book recommendation?
1: Okay, okay. Uh, gosh, I re- I read around a lot of different things. Uh, that's,
0: a, that's all right. That's okay.
1: Well, one one book I've been reading recently is *The Invisible Rainbow*, which is a very interesting one. I've actually got, I was just looking down at my treatment table here because that's that's a a history of electricity and uh, essentially talking about the connection between
0: who's the, and, who's the author
1: it's um Arthur Furstenberg hmm. so that's that's a very interesting read you can see I've got a few few markers in the pages there um uh yeah I mean I okay so I, I switch between more technical reading and uh and then more philosophical reading so I'm reading a book by a guy called Stanley Kellerman at the moment so he's he's a kind of um I don't know what his Official training is. I think. I mean, he was a bit of a guru, but he was, he was an emotional uh, embodiment kind of guy. And he. So he's got various books on how the emotions are expressed in the body. He worked very closely with um, Jungian psychology, and partly because of that, he worked closely with um, uh, Joseph Campbell. They were good friends. So Joseph Campbell, obviously, the hero's he, uh, journey, mythologists. Yeah, yeah, hero's journey. Um, and, uh, so this, this particular one, they, they wrote together, Joseph Campbell and, uh, and Stanley Kellerman. So, um, and it's called, hmm, what is it called? Uh, well, there's one, there's one that I, I've been dipping into as well called living your dying, which is by Stanley Kellerman. Very interesting, kind of, kind of talking about how we die all the time and we, the, The whole process of life is to die which is kind of interesting in the context of what we were talking about you know the the whole process of you know the primal lifestyle of even five fingers business is is that you know you have to go through a life cycle with it but you have to let it die and you have to move on to something else so so that's one of them um but the other one oh i'm trying to think of the, the 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 title of it it's um it relates a lot to archetypes so he's talking a lot about archetypes um, uh, i'll
0: it. I'll find it and put it in the show notes anyway so don't worry about it yeah.
1: yeah yeah sure all right well i can let you know as well so yeah, yeah.
0: it'd be great show way. um final one for you and if if you, for some reason you you want time to think about it or some people do struggle with this you can uh <laughs> you can promise me that you'll answer it on part two Uh <laughs> let's say I, i'm i'm over in your neck of the woods and i say you hey, matt i want to bring you out for dinner and i'm gonna bring my magical powers and that doesn't freak you out because you're friends with politics or you, you're you're <laughs> you yeah. you're you're used to hearing wacky shit like that whereas most other people go what do you mean you've got magic powers but uh i say Mattis, i'm gonna bring you for dinner and you can invite five people to this dinner and they can be dead or alive they can be uh Oof. real individuals or they can be fictitious characters who would you bring to this dinner and why would you bring them to the dinner
1: oh wow that is that is a good one
0: um and you can take your time here because if there's any long pauses, I can just edit them out, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just going to make a cup of coffee. Um, hmm. And don't forget, if you come back on, you can say, actually, I want to change my five people, so. Yeah, change my five,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I think Einstein's got to be one of them just because he's so profound. He's, he's Albert Einstein. <laughs> well, uh, so profoundly influential on, on our... Modern day world, and so misquoted as well. It would be great to just understand, you know, like there's so many quotes attributed to Einstein. Uh, it would be great to understand if he agreed with them, you know, if he, he says, well, Yeah, I think I think that one.
0: <laughs> the, I don't know if you read Mark Manson's second book. Uh um, everything is fucked. His second one, and he 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 basically <laughs> says in the book, he says like when 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 somebody doesn't know who originally said a quote, it's like everyone goes, "That's probably Einstein." Probably Einstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so that's one. Um,
1: alive with it. See, I, I guess there's certain people that have hugely inspired me across the years, and I'd love to meet from that perspective. Yeah, um, on, yeah. So, but whether or not they. No, dinner party. So like George Michael was my favorite musician when I was a Mm. kid. He was someone I really looked up to and, you know, admired for his musical talent, his voice, the fact he wrote all his songs, what the kind of content of some of what he wrote about I really resonated with me. And it was like poetry to me. And I, I love I love kind of the poetic language, I think it's fantastic. Um,
0: He's the first time anyone's mentioned him, so it's great to hear a new one. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he was, he was definitely, a th- like a lot of artists, like you talk about Bono or someone like that, you know, he they, they are philosophers as well, you know, but, but and George Michael was in that camp. So, you know, he would be one person. Um, I mean, I've been hugely inspired by David Beckham as a footballer myself. Right. And right. seeing what he did, part of the thing with Beckham is that he, uh, is in the same school year as me, you know, and so when he was going into that whole, you know, the the what do they call them, the the class of '92, and they were kind of emerging in the Manchester United first team and the England team, you know, you're kind of looking at them going, wow, well, that's they're my age, right? And and uh,
0: unbelievable group of players like the Neville's wow. and Beckham and Giggs yeah. and Skulls, unreal.
1: Nicky yeah. Butt was one of them as well. Nicky so. yeah, Butt, but,
0: yeah. But yeah, so you know those. I,
1: you know, watching Beckham go through I, I was a midfielder and I was a free kick taker and a corner taker so I think that kind of resonated most with him in a way um, uh, so I think I'd love to have a conversation with him but I'd, I don't know whether he, that, that's uh, nah that's good I'll leave him in I'll leave him in <laughs> yeah, this is
0: great this is great yeah, yeah.
1: Um, okay so then you've got uh,
0: so we've Einstein George Michael and David Beckham in, interesting I hope I'm liking it so far
1: quite interesting mix yeah yeah in terms of I'm, I'm trying to think of different categories and also I'm aware that I haven't got any women in, involved yet um, and if I if I studied history a bit more I think I'd probably get more enthusiastic about characters from history like um, uh, like Cleopatra or um, you know, Catherine the Great, or something like that. Mm. You know, I, I think I'd be really interested to find out about those people. I just haven't studied history as much as I probably should have, um, and so I, I'm—I guess I'm not quite as enamored by that idea. Obviously, you've got um, Siddhartha, the Buddha. Yeah,
0: um,
1: I mean, that would be an interesting person to have to your dinner table, because um, uh, he's, as far as I know, he's a historical figure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think he's obviously Jesus uh is more contentious uh in terms of his him actually being a historical figure or, or more of a story. Um but you know, I think I think most recently it's much more likely that he was a historical figure. I think it started out, of course, most people accepted he was a historical figure. Then then there's a lot of question over it. And now I think the evidence is pointing to the likelihood that he was.
0: I uh I've said this in a few other podcasts and, and you'll appreciate this is that uh, there's no if if Jesus was a real human being there's no way he was that white
1: yeah that's right and how the fuck did he find Matthew, 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 Matthew Mark, Mark John? John? yeah or yeah yeah in the Middle East
0: <laughs> in the, out, yeah. out in the Middle East his best mates Matthew Mark Lee, John? don't think so
1: yeah, yeah they just flew in from the UK <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, yeah so I mean obviously those, those huge figures uh, would be phenomenal to have there uh, you know there, there's lots of people that have inspired me over the years um you know obviously paul czech being one of them leon chato being another one uh and i loved being in their company and, and you know they would be great to have at the table yeah. um
0: but i but i have i again
1: i have life experience of being with those so, so those people so i guess I, they, they fall a little further down the rankings for me
0: <laughs> um yeah i was lucky enough to study under leon at uh, the, the national training center here in dublin um i did a new i did a certi- certification then i did the higher diploma in new therapy and leon was one of our tutors and you know he was just like when when we had him for our very first class he was just like that big grumpy granddad and yeah. then like you just learned to love him like and he actually treated me a few times and oh my god his hands were just incredible yeah, just yeah, you just yeah, yeah. that sense of like this man knows what he's at he's just yeah. he beautiful hands like when he worked on you, it was just he was incredible
1: fantastic yeah so that is a, there's there's nothing much more uh enchanting than having someone who's got really well trained hands oh work. yeah it's just like it's, uh, yeah you can melt away that's
0: that's it's the word away. melt that is the word
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was yeah, incredible
0: yeah. and he had such big hands too you know what i mean it was just these big, firm, but yet gentle hands. Just like a real gentle bear, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was great. Matt, this has been incredible. I'll say goodbye to you offline and absolutely want you back for part two because, again, there's so much more I want to uh, discuss with you. But for everyone listening, oh, oh, Matt, sorry, before we go, where can the listeners find out more about you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, sure. They, they can
1: find me at mattwalden.com. So it's Matt with two T's, warden with two L's, and it's D E N in case. I'm, I'm unsure but uh, yeah so so uh that's the best place but i'm obviously around on the social media great um, so you can, can search me up there yeah. so
0: yeah I'll, again i'll link i'll link everything up on the show it's website and social media links everything and anything else that we've mentioned like books and whatnot so for everyone listening as i say at the end of every show until next time take care be well and stay strong